0: If you have your Bible, again, I'd encourage you to turn to our second reading, this is the one on which the teaching today will be based, uh, Isaiah chapter 41. We're continuing the series through Isaiah. Uh, last week we saw that Isaiah is beginning to look ahead to events way in the future, uh, actually long after Isaiah himself would be dead, and today it's the same thing. He's looking ahead to this certain event, the coming of King Cyrus Uh, to deliver Israel from Babylon back to the promised land. But mixed up in that is this problem of fear. The fear that Israel felt in the meantime, and then the fear that the nations would feel when Cyrus came to dispossess them. And so this morning I think we'll we'll get to talk a little bit about our own struggle with fear. Uh, Look with me at verses 2, 3, and 5 through 16. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, Be strong! And the one who smooths with the hammer... Or, and the metal worker encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it's good. The other nails down the idol so that it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said... You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear. I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. This is God's word. This morning I wonder, do you believe it's possible? We've got to ask this question right out of the gate. Do you believe it's possible to handle fear well or to handle, handle fear in a healthy way? Sometimes I wonder whether we even believe it's possible. Like, do you know somebody in your life who actually handles fear in a constructive, healthy way? Do you know anybody who does that well? Uh, If you do, maybe you do. What does that look like? And maybe could you share it with the rest of us? Because fear, though it's universal, I mean, everybody struggles with fear. I, I think I'm talking to everybody this morning, whether you're here in person or Watching with us from home, you struggle with fear. I find that even people who say, I'm not afraid of anything, I'm never scared, are usually the ones that are the most scared. Think about it. Because they're so scared of something that they're scared to admit they're scared. (laughs) Right? That's the way it is. Uh, Fear haunts us all. Sometimes we're afraid of little things. Sometimes we're afraid of big things. Sometimes fear can tip from being a relatively constructive thing that can help us live wisely to becoming an all-consuming thing that chains us up and keeps us gripped. When I mean, We talk about being paralyzed by fear, don't we? Well, Isaiah is talking about that from beginning to end in chapter 41. He's foretelling a future event. He's preparing Israel for a moment when they will feel afraid and all the nations around them will feel afraid, and God is showing them a new way, a whole new way, of handling fear in their life. If you look at your sermon outline, it's right there beside the reading in the bulletin. Isaiah shows us three things. First of all, the sources of fear. Secondly, the strategies of fear. And lastly, the settling of fear. The sources, the strategies, and the settling of fear. First of all, let's look at the sources. If you look there at verses 2 and 3, he asks some very important questions and Tells us a little bit about the situation that he's foretelling hundreds of years in the future. He says, Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? Uh, He's describing this he that he's describing is a man named Cyrus. Uh, He was the king of the Persian Empire. And so I have to give you a little history lesson again, it's a little short one. Uh, After Israel got sent away into exile in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, you may recognize his name. He was a ruthless king. They were carried for a whole generation, hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles away from the Promised Land. But about 75 years after that, the Persian Empire, way out in modern-day Iran, starts to gain power. And Cyrus comes through, and he, he mows over all of the Babylonian Empire. Completely takes over. And he's a little bit, I mean, he can be ruthless, but he's a little bit more kind to Israel. He returns them at his own cost back to the Promised Land. And with his own money helps them rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. It's a very different kind of ruling strategy than Nebuchadnezzar had. This was going to be good news for Israel, but it was going to be bad news for somebody else. Just in the same way that Babylon was bad news for Israel, right? Right? Who is it going to be bad news for? Babylon and all the rest of the nations that were kind of surrounding Israel and treating them so poorly. And so he says, who stirred up one from the east? He hands the nations over to him and subdues kingdoms before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. He's painting for us a picture of the total uh, takeover (laughs) that Cyrus is going to one day in the future accomplish over all the nations, including the mighty Babylonian Empire. The result of that, of course, is going to be what? Verse 5. The islands, which in the Bible always refers to the other nations besides Israel. When you see nations or peoples or islands or coastlands in the Bible in the Old Testament, it's referring to all the other nations besides Israel. It says, they are going to see what Cyrus does, and they are going to tremble in fear because of it. And so right there, we see something about the source of fear. Not only in the nations, but in Israel and in our own lives. Think about what happens when you get afraid of something. And we get afraid of all kinds of things, don't we? Uh, You can be afraid of relatively small things that are very particular to you. For example, some people are really afraid of heights. And you can't even get them up on a ladder. But then other people, you know, they can do jobs where they're way up in the air and they they don't really feel too much at all. In the same way, some people are terrified of planes. I know some people who will not fly on a plane. And there are other people who sleep like a baby when they're flying way up in the sky like that, right? Uh, Some people are terrified of spiders. Other people have them as pets. I don't fully understand that. Probably because I'm in the afraid of spiders category. But this is not talking about those kind of fears. We might call them phobias. This is talking about fears that are really serious and that all of us share in. Let me give you some examples. Death, right? The Bible actually says it so perfectly in the New Testament. Human beings are held all their lives long, it says, into slavery by fear of death. That's a universal one. Uh, people don't have a phobia of death. Well, we don't talk about it that way, because why? We all got it. <laughs> From the beginning of life to the end, especially uh, the later we get in our lives, death can actually become a controlling principle where we're doing all these things or not doing all these things in order to try to avoid what we're afraid of. Other things like that, rejection, that's a fear that everybody Shares in sickness, physical harm, uh, financial, dire straits. You know, when we get into financial trouble, everybody's afraid of that being strapped and not having the basic things that you need or being able to provide those basic things to your family. That's the kind of stuff he's talking about here war, terrorism. I mean, these are the big capital F fears. And when Isaiah announces Cyrus to come, he knows. That even though that's going to be good news for one nation, Israel, it's going to be bad news for others. And there are many things in life like that. Many different things in life. At the end of the day, y'all, it's just true. We've got to admit it. The Bible admits it. We live in a dangerous world. We live in a world of danger, a world of risk, a world of tragedy, a world of death, a world of fear. Right? But we've got to ask it another question. What is going on in your heart, what is going on in my heart, when that fear turns from just being a basic knee-jerk reaction that causes us to be wise, which is a good thing, to becoming a shackle that holds us in its grip and forces us into lifelong slavery? What's happening? The clue is there in one word in verse 2. Who? (laughs) You see it? Who has stirred up this one from the east, Cyrus? This is the key right here. Uh, What is the answer, by the way, to that who question? God. You know, I didn't read verse 4 because it's kind of a repetition, but I regretted not putting it in the bulletin after I'd made the decision because it gives you the answer in verse (laughs) 4. Who has done this and who has carried it through, verse 4, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, it says. With the first of them and with the last, I am he. I'm the who. Here's what's happening, I find, in my heart whenever fear turns from being just a, I need to be more careful because that's really dangerous, to I'm being controlled and I don't know what to do because fear is just stalking me and I just don't know what to do and I'm paralyzed. I fail to answer the who question appropriately. When I don't understand that God is at the helm of the world, in the good things and in the bad things, those things that are bad not only warn me, not only give me some instruction on how to navigate through life, but they actually begin to control me and to overwhelm me. Because there's no trust, right? If I don't know who's in the helm of the world, then maybe no one's at the helm of the world. Maybe I'm at the helm of the world. Maybe Satan is at the helm of the world. I don't know who's at the helm of the world. Maybe those that are in charge of the government are at the helm of the world. I don't know who is. You see? Fears can easily balloon on you when you don't understand the answer to the who question. And so Isaiah is coming to Israel saying that the nations aren't going to know the answer to this. They're going to completely miss it, just like you guys have missed it many times in the past. But I want to remind you before this event happens so that you don't forget it again when it happens, that I'm the one who stirs up everything. I'm the stirrer of the pot of this world. I'm the one who raises up kings and brings kings down. I'm the one who causes wars to begin and causes wars to cease. I'm not the author of sin. Don't blame me for sin because sin's y'all's fault. But I'm still very much firmly in control of this world. And you need to know that if you're going to learn how to trust me even through danger and even through trouble. You see what he's saying? I mean, think about the difference. I mean, the difference here is like the difference between jumping on a city bus or on a school bus, kids, which you know the driver, the driver's got a uniform on, Uh, he or she is official, and they're being held accountable, versus riding with somebody who picked you up because you were hitchhiking. Right? How do you feel in one versus the other? You may have a pretty bad school bus driver, maybe, but you feel a lot more safe probably when you're in that yellow school bus with Polk County School Board or McKeel Academy or whatever it has on the side than you do in the random guy that just happened to respond to this, right? (laughs) Isaiah's saying the nations are going to be terrified because they still believe, just like you have falsely believed Israel in the past, they believe that they're hitchhikers in this world. That they're just being driven around by some random chance things that no one is in control of. Maybe they're the ones that they think they're in control of it. They don't realize they're under the safe keeping of an official driver, of an official captain with a uniform and all. God the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who rules over the world. Do you see that in your own heart? Think about it. I mean, I really want you to think this morning about your own heart. What is that area of your life, maybe areas, where you're being overwhelmed by fear? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it your finances? Is it your physical health? Is it COVID? Is it wars and rumors of wars and all the stuff that you hear on the news? What is it? Can you look kind of like with spiritual x ray glasses down into your heart a little bit this morning? Just a little, get a little touch of what it really is going on in there, that perhaps when the who question is asked, you do not have an answer to it. Or even if you do have an answer, it's not the answer that God wants you to have. Now this gives us a clue as to why fear is such an important thing to talk about, right? Because fear ultimately can be good, it can be a sin. It's a sin in the way we're describing it. When it's a sin, it's a sin because it is a denial of God, just like every other sin is. Right? God cares, God cares that you're overly afraid. Why? Because it's a window into how you're not relating to him well. You're not loving him the way you're called to. I'm not loving him the way I'm called to when I'm afraid like this. And plus, if you, that doesn't convince you, think about this. You can't love other people very well, can you, when you're gripped by fear? I mean, it's just a, a normal thing in my life that when I'm, when I'm driven by fear, I, I just look past other people. Why? Because I'm looking at myself. I'm looking at my circumstances and what I can do to help fix my circumstances and I'm worried about as if I'm the driver of the universe. As if I'm the driver of my own life. You have got to have a really good answer to the who question. This is the reason why you can't say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a simple Christian. I just believe just simply just Jesus and Nothing else. I don't need all that theology stuff. I don't need all those parts of the Bible that are obscure. I don't need all that. I'm just simple. I believe in Jesus and I try to keep the Ten Commandments. It doesn't work that way, actually. Do you realize Isaiah is preparing Israel for an event that was hundreds of years in the future by teaching them theology? What does that mean? That means you need it, too. You you need it. If God said it in the Bible, you need it. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to get it all. That doesn't mean you're going to, even a whole lifetime, if all you did was study the Bible, you'd miss some things because there's just too much in there. And we don't always get it anyway, even though we're reading it. <laughs> but if it's in the Bible, we need to endeavor to know it. We need to endeavor to try to get it into our not only our minds, but our hearts. Because when tragedy strikes, the who question is going to come oozing out of you. And it's either going to be God or it's going to be something else. That's the first thing. That's the source of fear. I hope you see it this morning. The second thing, the strategies of fear. The strategies of fear. Have you ever watched a scary movie? I hate scary movies. Uh, It's like my least favorite kind of movie, but unfortunately a few times in my life I've had to endure them. Because I always figure, why do I pay someone or spend my time to have them scare me? This doesn't make sense to me, but some people like it. Uh, But the ones I've seen, the same scene happens every time. Something scary is about to happen. We know it. The music gets real dark and tense. The lighting gets darker. The shots get real creepy and kind of behind the bushes and shaking a little bit or whatever, you know, kind of moving back and forth. And yet the main character, what does he or she do? Every time. Uh, instead of running away from the scary house, they run up the stairs. <laughs> down the creepy hallway, right? Right? Uh, Instead of going out of the woods, they run deeper into the woods. Instead of away from the cave, they go in the cave. I mean, I don't understand these people, but it happens every single time. Isaiah is saying, the nations, just like Israel at times, just like us at times, are just like that. When we get scared, our strategy amounts to the main character in a horror movie. Instead of actually running in a direction that's going to relieve us of fear we run in all these other directions that actually are just going to compound our fears they're just going to make it worse look at what it says there in verse 5 when the islands see it and when they are afraid they will tremble the ends of the earth will tremble then what will they do listen they approach and come forward right doesn't that sound just like the, the characters in the, in the scary movies? They approach and come forward towards the danger, towards what's scary. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong, right? So they, they take refuge in empty words, be strong, hang in there, it's going to be okay, don't worry, be happy. And then what do they do? Verse 7. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith. The one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding work, it's good. And then another one nails down the idol so it doesn't topple. Here, this is the way we as human beings handle our fears we take refuge in empty words and empty idols. It's what we do, isn't it? You say, well, I have never fashioned an idol of gold and nailed it to the ground. Hold on a minute and I'll tell you, you half. Right? Hold on, I'm going to tell you, you half. But notice they were literally doing that back then. When Cyrus came, God was foretelling that the nations were going to multiply their worship of their fake gods. And we know they're fake because they had to nail them down so that they wouldn't fall over. And the ridiculousness of that, which Isaiah loves to point out, he does it many times throughout his book, the ridiculous of The ridiculousness of that is really, really hard to miss, isn't it? Like someone running up the stairs and down the creepy hallway right into the arms of the creepy guy. Empty words cannot solve the problem of fear. You can say, be strong all day, but what happens if you're not actually strong? You can say, it's going to be all right all day, but what if it's not all right? You can nail down an idol all day, but what if it topples? And it will topple. You can make it out of gold if you want. It's going to look real pretty. It's going to look real dazzling, which is the appeal of all idolatry, isn't it? It's so much easier to worship something you can touch. Money. You can touch it. And it seems like such a great help in times of fear, doesn't it, money? Because you can actually touch it. You can't touch God. You can't see God. He's... He's so mysterious in many ways. He's incomprehensible, in fact, in some ways. But money and 401ks and, you know, relationships and, you know, the picket fence and the perfect house with the 2.5 kids and the dog that always behaves, right? All that stuff you can put your hands on, you can put your eyes on. It's so easy to worship those things, but yet, what happens when they topple? What happens when your health really does run down? And can I get a witness this morning that it will run down? It will. I mean, you may be young and think it won't, but it will. It'll run down. Isaiah is saying, stop. Don't, Israel, do what the nations do. Be different. In the past, you've been no different. The history of Israel is about how they've tried to be the nations rather than try to be the light to the nations. And I think sometimes as believers, we too do the same thing. We spend so much time trying to be like everything around us rather than trying to be light to everything around us. And this is one of the primary ways we do it. Now let me convince you that you actually have built idols in your life. And you have actually uh, taken refuge in empty words. There are three ways that I find myself responding to fear, three strategies that I use that I think are just like this, even though they look different. The first one is denial. Denying. Think about it. Uh, When I get afraid, I say... There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to be afraid. Someone comes to me and says, I'm afraid of death. Not a big deal. It's going to be a long time from now anyway. Don't worry about it. It's best just not to think about that. It's best to put it far out of your mind. Well, that, that does help for a tiny little moment, doesn't it? You do, in fact, you can get it out of your mind a lot of times, and you can move on and do something else. But guess what? Sometimes in life, there really is something to be afraid of and i think there's no greater example than death think about it i mean it's kind of it's morbid literally to think about death but it's important death is scary your soul gets ripped from your body you leave this world you go somewhere else that you don't know anybody at least personally that has gone there and come back right except jesus right that you can interview about what's on the other side that's scary even more scary is who you will see after you die and whether or not you will be prepared to see that one that you will see after you die. Death is really scary. It is, it is definitely not a good strategy that I normally use to just deny, 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 say there's nothing to worry about, there's nothing to be afraid of. When I'm not denying, I defend and I get defensive. This is my second strategy. I say, you know what? I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to do everything I can do to avoid all the risks and dangers here. I see the danger. I see the risk, but I'm going to do everything I can do to avoid it. I'm going to go on Google WebMD, and I'm going to research it. I'm going to learn everything I can learn about that scary thing, and I'm going to master it so that I, I, I'm going to avoid the, the outcome that I'm so gripped in fear about. That sounds good, too. Actually, that one glitters with gold today, doesn't it? Just like the idols did in, um, in Isaiah's day. It glitters with gold because there are so many good strategies available to us in the modern world. There is so much knowledge available to us in the modern world, isn't there? So you actually can make a dent a little bit into some things by doing this. But guess what? Let me tell you this. You cannot... Work hard enough to eliminate all risks and dangers in life. You cannot. Is that right? You cannot know enough about the disease to conquer the disease or to avoid it coming to you or whatever it is you're afraid of. You cannot study enough to prevent bad things from happening or danger to happen. You can make a dent. I'm not saying you should not try to do anything against bad things. Of course you should. That's the good part of fear that spurs us to be wise. But there's a very big difference, and I hope you can discern it in your heart, between being wise and kind of minding your P's and Q's versus obsessively trying to Control everything in your life and know everything in your life to avoid all risks and dangers. I think the past year and a half or however long it's been with COVID has probably taught us this lesson. I I hope it has, right? Where where the whole world has tried to strategize. And yeah, you can do some things, and I'm not saying you shouldn't strategize, but you can't strategize it away. We live in a world of danger. Denial doesn't work. It's, It's a little bit like the... The nations that Isaiah is talking about saying, be strong, let, me, let us make an idol. Let's build something that we can put our hands on and we can pray to that thing. And it gives us a tangible connection with God or the gods that we can really bank on so that all the danger stays away. That's what they really believed would happen. They would build the idol, nail it down, and then pray for rain. And they believed that would make rain happen. We laugh at that, right? Don't we? Because that seems ridiculous, but don't we do it? Don't we think we can make it rain <laughs> in so many different ways in our lives? The third strategy I use is detaching. I deny, I defend, or I detach. When I detach, I say, you know what, this, is not, this part of my life is scary, I don't like it, so I'm going to focus on another part of my life. My health is not good, so I'm going to focus on my family. And I'm going to make sure I get my family right, and I'm going to do everything I can do to keep my family well and safe and protected and all that. Or, you know, I can't find a spouse, and so I'm just going to throw myself into my career. Or I can't get my career right, so I'm going to find a spouse. Don't we do that? From one thing to the other? Well, what is that? Is that really solving fear? No, every time I've done that, I've only either added one fear to another or just replaced one fear with another. Because I go from my health to my family only to realize that my family is in just as much danger as my health. And I have just as few answers from my family as I do for my health. Right? Uh, my career falls apart. I find the spouse. And my spouse is just as hard as my career. <laughs> and vice versa. And so it's this ridiculous thing. You know, one idol topples over. We build another one and nail that one down. And it topples over. We build one and nail it down. It's just fear after fear after fear after fear compounded on fear. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus in the passage we read earlier. The main thing that characterizes those who don't believe in me is fear. They will not come into the light lest their deeds be exposed. Because they know, deep down inside, Jesus says, we know deep down inside that our lives are hanging by a thread. Don't we know that? Our lives are hanging by a thread. And as much as we try to pretend you know, we've got this area of our life in control even though we don't have these others, we know we really don't have that area under control. We know that. And so we stay in the dark. We detach. We don't commit. We go from one thing to another, one relationship to another. I hope, I hope that convinces you this morning. That not only do you have a problem with the who question, we've all got a problem with a strategy question. We do not know what to do when it comes to fear. And so, listen to the third point. The settling of fear. God comes to Israel there in verses 8 to 16, and he gives them promises. I mean promise after promise after promise, which is really the main thing that settles our hearts in times of fear. It's the promises of God. The first thing he says there in verse 8, look at it. But you, Israel, you know, he's been describing what the nations are going to do. They're going to run to all these bogus strategies, but he says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, right? I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners I called you. I said you were my, cho- my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. This is the first thing that God does to settle our fears. He reminds you not just who he is, He doesn't just come to us and say, Hey guys, you don't know I'm at the helm of the world. You need to know I'm at the helm of the world and get on board. I mean, that would be, I mean, he could do that, and that would be a good lesson to learn. But he does more than that. He does that and more. He says, I'm at the helm of the world, and guess what? I'm at the helm of the world for you and for your sake, if you're my people. If you come to me by faith, if you turn away from life your way, if you're born again from above, whatever you want to describe it, If you come to me, I am at the helm of the world, ruling the world for my glory and your good. You are my people, my chosen. In other words, not only do we need to get the who question, we need to get the whose are we question right. There's nothing better to settle the fear in my heart than to know whose I am. Because that teaches me who I really am in the world. When I go from one strategy to another, one idol to another, one empty word to another, I still at some level believe I'm at the helm of the world. I'm in control. I can, I can fix it. I can do something about what ails me and what ails this world and this life. When I learn, verses 8 through 9, you're my servant. You're my chosen. I have called you from the ends of the earth. I called you from far away and brought you near to me. You're a descendant of Abraham, my friend. You're a part of a family of friends. Friends of God himself. I mean, what an amazing thing. Not only to know that God is on the throne of the world, but God is your friend on the throne of the world. And isn't that what Jesus says? No longer have I called you merely servants, but I've called you friends. I've called you friends. That's not it. He has more to say. He says there in verses 10 to 16, I promise, first of all, my presence with you. Do not fear, he says, which is, by the way, the most repeated commandment in the Bible. Just as a side note. Hundreds of times in Old Testament and New Testament, it says don't be afraid. Do not fear. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. In other words, not only do you belong to me, but even in all the danger of life, I'm there with you. You're not alone. You don't have to walk through anything alone. Not death, not sickness, not financial ruin, not relational frustration, not divorce, not anything that you go through in life. You don't have to walk it alone. God is with us, it says. God has committed himself to be present. He's committed himself to care for us. I will uphold you, he says. I will strengthen you. He's committed to protect us ultimately. Not necessarily from the the things that ail us here and now, but he's, he's promised that those things will not finally destroy us because his righteous right hand will uphold us. And then lastly, this is the great thing, because it, it would be only partially good news to know. I belong to God and he's with me in all my difficulty. That's partial good news, right? Because then, okay, well, is it just forever and ever I'm going to be in difficulty and it's just God's with me? No. God says not only that, one day all the difficulties are going to be cleared away. Completely cleared away. Look at what it says in verses 15 and 16. Beautiful verses if you, if you can understand them. And they're a little hard to understand because we don't use threshing sledges very often in our lives. But let me explain. It says, uh, Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, verse 14. Little Israel, do not fear. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth, and you'll thresh mountains. A threshing sledge looks like a literal sleigh, like a sled that you ride down in a snow mountain with. It's a wooden. Plank with a curved up front, like a sled. On the bottom, though, it's not smooth. It has jagged um, flint, the pieces of flint kind of attached to it, very sharp, all across the bottom. They would take it and drag it behind horses and and oxen over the grain because it would come through and cut the husk away from the kernel. And that would make it easier to winnow, which is another word he uses, which is, you know, taking the The grain that's already been separated and throwing it in the air. When you throw it in the air, the grain falls down because it's heavy. And the husk or the chaff blows away because it's light. But first got to have a heavy-duty, sharp threshing sledge. New. You can't use last year's threshing sledge. you got to have a new one with sharper bottoms so that when you go over it, it will separate out what couldn't be separated very easily by hand. Notice a threshing sledge and a worm basically does the same thing. (laughs) Right? Uh, If you get worms in your grain, what do they do? They eat the husk off to get to the kernel. They separate the kernel from the husk. It's just a worm works at about, well, a worm's pace. (laughs) And uh, a worm, you know, is very small and can only cover a little small section of the farm. And as they... Dehusk it, they also destroy it by eating the grain. God says, you're my people, and you're all messed up. You're all kinds of messed up. You're trying to do a job that you not only can't do, but even in your attempts to do it, you destroy it. And that's the way we are against the problem of fear. Not only can't we do it, but when we try to do it, we make it worse. And God says, I'm going to take you worms, and I'm going to turn you into threshing sledges. And you're going to thresh not just grain. You're going to thresh mountains. You're going to thresh hills. You're going to thresh the nations. There are going to be no more one day, but you're going to be left rejoicing in the Lord and glorying in the Holy One of Israel. This is the very thing that Paul means in Romans chapter 16 when he says, fear not. One day, very soon, Satan will be crushed under your feet. Same promise, right? It's the same thing that he's saying. If you belong to Christ, not only do you have... Not only do you have that that you are his and you have a new identity, which is so so important. You have a new identity as being a part of his family of friends like Abraham. Not only do you have God with you to care for you and protect you in this dangerous world. Not only do you have him there to uh, console you with his promises every day of your life. But guess what you also have? A future promise that one day all the things that scare you now will be no more all the tears that you cry now in fear will be cried no more they will be under your feet crushed because you share in the victory of Jesus and his resurrection now if you can sincerely take all that in and bring it into your heart and still be afraid in a all controlling life controlling way you need to think about it again and again and again and again Every situation where fear comes up and rears its head, you need to think about it. You need to go back to Isaiah 41 or other places in the Bible where God assures you. There's this beautiful uh, scene uh, in closing. There's a beautiful scene in the Pilgrim's Progress where a Christian gets locked up in Doubting Castle. Have you ever been locked up in Doubting Castle? Yeah, I have. I know that place pretty well. And every day in Doubting Castle, giant despair came and just beat Christian over the head with a big old club. Have you ever been beat with that club, giant despair? I have. It says in the book, this is beautiful, it says eventually, as day after day, he's sitting there just stewing in his doubts, head aching because just the night before, giant despair just clubbed him again. Christian looks down and notices glimmering in his inside coat pocket, a little golden key. And he remembered that when he first became a Christian, he had been given that key, but he didn't know what it was for. And he took it out, and on the key it said, Key Promise. It was the key called promise. And he said, I wonder wonder if this has anything to do with where I'm at now. He tries it in the chains that bind him. It unlocks. It unlocks. He's able to escape, not only Doubting Castle, but he's able to escape the grip of giant despair. He's able to escape the slavery to fear. Why? Because he didn't just hear the promises of God. He used them. He took them out of his pocket where they were kind of just laying there unused, and he brought them back into use. He took them into his heart and applied them into his life. This morning, do not be afraid. Why? You are God's. Not, you know, gods with an apostrophe, right? You belong to God. (laughs) You are gods. You're his. He's with you. He promises it. He promises to care for you and to watch over you. And not only that, one day, us worms, believe it or not, are going to be threshing sledges. And all those things that bind us will be trampled under our feet. Amen? Amen.